Good morning. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The author of the book of Hebrews is trying to show the superiority of Christ. And as you read the book of Hebrews, he shows that Christ is superior to prophets, to the priest, to the angels, to Moses, scattered in with about six warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. But the problem that the author has in trying to show the superiority of Christ is the same problem that my three-year-old would have if she were trying to explain to another three-year-old about the superiority of Albert Einstein's intelligence over Bugs Bunny. <laughs> it's hard. And the reason it's hard is because Firstly, she wouldn't understand the extent of Einstein's intelligence. And secondly, there is no comparison. One is so vastly superior than the other. And thirdly, she would run out of vocabulary in trying to explain how superior one is more than the other. But we're going to look at five things that the author of Hebrews writes in these four verses about Jesus Christ. The first thing is that he is the heir. In verse 2 it says, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Christ is the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. Everything. In the Old Testament, there is a phrase that says that God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything in the seen and unseen universe belongs to Jesus. When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he told Abraham that the ground on which he was standing belonged to him. So that was a promise. But unfortunately, the only land that Abraham owned was the land that he bought with his money to bury his wife. And it was in the same grave that he was buried. So even though every stock and stone in that land was his and every beast and fowl from the Nile to the Euphrates was his, the only thing he really owned was the plot of ground that he was buried in. When Jesus was on earth, he owned very less, almost nothing. In fact, in reading the gospel accounts of Jesus, you find that he is not pretentious, even though he is the heir of everything. 
Max Lucado in his book, When God Whispers Your Name, talks about the popularity of Jesus. And he says this, Jesus wasn't invited because he was a celebrity. He was not one yet. The invitation wasn't motivated by his miracles. He'd yet to perform any. Then why did they invite him? I suppose they liked him. I think it's significant that common folk in a little town enjoyed being with Jesus. I think it's noteworthy that the Almighty didn't act high and mighty. The Holy One wasn't holier than thou. The one who knew it all wasn't to know it all. The one who made the stars didn't keep his head in them. The one who owns all the stuff of earth never strutted it. His purpose was not to show off, but to show up. He went to great pains as to be human as a guy down the street. He didn't need to study, yet he went to a synagogue. He didn't need to work for income, but he still worked in the workshop. He had known the fellowship of angels and heard the harps of heaven, yet still went to parties thrown by tax collectors. And upon his shoulders rested the challenge of redeeming creation, but he still took time to walk 90 miles from Jericho to Cana to go to a wedding. He was the heir, but he had almost nothing while he was on earth. In fact, even the tomb that he was buried in was borrowed. In Hebrews 2 verse 8 it says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. The second thing that the writer of Hebrews wants us to know about Jesus is that he is the creator. In verse 2 it says, Through whom also he made the world. The world was made through Christ and in Christ. So Christ is the agency of creation and the medium in which creation took place. In John 1 verse 3 it says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Take a look at this video. It's a sermon by Francis Chan called The Awe Factor of God. This is the earth. Okay, then it's just, just you're taking off from the earth from Southern California and we're gonna we're gonna rise up for a little bit here. Okay, we're gonna pull away from it. We're gonna pull higher. Now this is at about ten kilometers. Like if you climb Mount Everest, this is what you'd see. You'd see the curvature of the earth from that distance. Now you're gonna we're gonna climb up even higher. This is at a hundred kilometers. And you're a fourth of the way to the space station now. This is what you'd see. If you get to this level, you're considered an astronaut. Just, if you ever get there. Okay, now we're going 100,000 kilometers. 100,000 kilometers from the Earth. You're a fourth of the way to the moon. That's what the Earth would look like. Now we're going to pull away to a million kilometers. At a million kilometers, there's the moon. Okay? There's the moon. You can barely see the Earth. You're at a million kilometers now. You're past the past the moon and uh, now we're going to go to a hundred million kilometers a hundred million kilometers you're still not to the sun the sun's 93 million miles away but now we're going to go to 10 trillion kilometers 
There's the sun. You just passed the sun. Now you would see all of the planets at 10 trillion kilometers. And now we're at 10 to the 15th power. That means 10 with 15 zeros. I don't know what that number is. 15 zeros. And the sun's just like a bright dot amidst other stars. And now we're going at 10 light years away. At 10 light years away. Come on, let's go. Zoom. There you go. 10 light years away. Now you just see the sun with like 11 other stars that are kind of its neighbors. You know, that, 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 that's our sun. And now we're going to go a thousand light years away. At a thousand light years away, you, you wouldn't even see our sun anymore. These are just a bunch of stars close to it in this cluster inside the Milky Way. Now we're going to zoom out even further, and that's the Milky Way we live in. See that cluster of stars? Those are about a hundred thousand stars that are closest to our sun. You can't see our sun anymore at this point. Now this is our Milky Way galaxy. Forget about the Earth. Okay, there's our Milky Way galaxy that we live in. Um, and we're just buried in there somewhere. And we're going to pull out even further. And you'll see that our galaxy is actually, it's, it's a big galaxy. And, uh, and all those other things you're seeing now are galaxies. And we're going to pull away 10 million light years now. This next scene is 10 million light years. Those are all galaxies you see amidst our Milky Way. Several hundred galaxies. Now we're going to go 100 million light years away. This is the last one. We're going to zoom out to 100 million light years. Those are all clusters of galaxies. Galaxies and clusters of galaxies. You won't even see our Milky Way galaxy anymore amidst that. We don't have telescopes that go beyond that little sphere there. No idea how big God is. And it's because of this ignorance about how big God is that it's so easy for us to shake our fist at him. If we could step back and see the magnificence of God, we would realize how small and minute our existence is. The third thing that the writer of Hebrews wants us to know about Jesus is that he is God. Verse 3 says, he is the exact representation of his nature. The Greek word for representation is the word character. It is used in classical Greek of an engraver, a person who mints coins and puts a seal so that the exact imprint of the seal comes on the coin. So Jesus is the exact impress of the divine character and the nature of God. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 it says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And Jesus makes this candid and clear confession of his deity when he says in John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. In our politically correct culture, it's easy to talk about God in general. But it's almost impossible to talk about Jesus. You can talk of Jesus as a good man, you can talk of Jesus as a moral man. 
You can talk of Jesus as a good teacher, but to say that Jesus is God will be frowned upon. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often claim to say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. In his book, Exploring Hebrews, John Phillips writes this, the lines of deity have been reproduced in Jesus' humanity, so to find out what God is like, we need only to look at Jesus. We can take the lines of Jesus' personality and draw those lines out towards infinity and obtain the perfect concept of God. And that is why Jesus almost incredulously asked Philip in John chapter 14 and verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. In their contemporary Christmas classic, Mark Lowry and Buddy Green in their song, Mary Did You Know, penned these lyrics. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you are holding is the great I am. The entire nature of God was in that little bundle of joy on that Christmas morning. Many years later, John, one of the favorite apostles of Jesus, in his first letter, in 1 John 1 and verse 1, says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You can hear the awe in his voice and see the quiver on his lips as he recounts how privileged he was to rub shoulders with God himself. The fourth thing about Jesus that the author would have us know is that he is the sustainer. In verse 3 it says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. The word for uphold is the word phero. And it implies the idea of sustaining and includes in it something that is in constant movement. 
So it's not a static holding up, but a dynamic one. So it's not only that it is the idea of holding something in constant movement. That word also means that the word of God maintains the coherence of the universe. So in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 it says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He brings coherence to the entire universe. He created the universe, he upholds the universe which is in constant movement, and now he brings coherence to the universe. He keeps everything in its place. And so the sun is 93 million miles away from Earth. And the moon is so many miles away from Earth. And the stars are in their place. And the oceans are in their place. The rivers are in their place. The people are in their place. He maintains coherence through his word. He maintains the coherence of the universe. He also is guiding and moving the universe to its planned end. So in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 it says, With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. The summing up of all things in Christ. Christ is bringing the entire universe to its planned end. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 14, Moses has this complaint. He says about the people of Israel, I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. And that word carry in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the same word Pharaoh. Moses didn't know that he didn't need to carry. Christ was carrying the people already. What burden are you carrying this morning? Maybe it's about your children. Maybe it's about your future. Maybe it's about money. Or your work. Or a burden of your education. Maybe you're burdened about your parents. There is no reason for us to carry our burdens. Because the one who created the universe with his powerful word created you. And the one who upholds the universe with its movement upholds you. And the one who gives coherence to the universe will give coherence to your life. And the one who is bringing the entire universe to its planned end will certainly give direction to your life. The fifth thing that the author of Hebrews would have us know about Jesus is that he is the glorious one. Verse 3 says, he is the radiance of his glory. This does not mean reflected glory like that of the moon. It means inner, essential glory like that of the sun. 
when we get to heaven, we will see the fullness of the glory of God. At this point, we have no idea about the glory of God. We've seen bits and pieces, but we really don't have an idea. Turn with me to the last book of the Bible. Revelation, and we'll read a couple verses from chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. That's where a crown is supposed to be, right? On your head. They had crowns on their heads. And then in verse 10 it says, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. As long as we compare ourselves to somebody else, we have our glories. We have our education, our heritage, our accomplishments, our profession, the things that we glory about, our pre-families. Then we come into the presence of God, and like these people, they could not keep the crowns of gold upon their heads. They had to put it down. Because when you come into the presence of God and see real glory, you've got to put your glory down. I mean, you can't keep boasting about your glory. We have not seen true glory. We have no idea what true glory is. Let me read some examples of people who saw the glory of God. The glory of God is the expression of the essential attributes of God. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Habakkuk said, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Ezekiel said, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. Job said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Daniel said, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. And in the book of Revelation, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Ladies and gentlemen, we have not seen real glory. We have not seen real glory. But we will. But we will. Let me read two verses. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. I'm going to engage the use of your finger to put 
uh, to Thessalonians, chapter 2. And we will also turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So our bodies are going to get a transformation. All our bodies are going to get a transformation. Why? Why do we need a body makeover? Is our haircut not good enough for heaven? Is our makeup not good enough for heaven? Maybe my height is not good enough for heaven. Or I get pale in winter, obviously not a problem I face. <laughs> Why is it that we need a body transformation? Let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Did you catch that? Let me read it again. And then the lawless one, who's talking about the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. There's no fist fight going to happen. How is Jesus going to destroy the Antichrist? By the splendor of his coming. He just has to show up. And the intensity of the glory of the Lord will destroy the Antichrist. Ladies and gentlemen, that is why we need a body makeover. That is why we need our bodies transformed. Because if not, we get to heaven, we will not survive. The intensity of the glory of the Lord is too much for us to handle. Remember the greatness of God the next time you are worried about the million things in life. Remember the greatness of God when you feel defeated by mortal humans. Remember the greatness of God the next time you are inclined to shake your fist at God. Remember the greatness of God when you are inclined to distrust him and question his motives. Remember the greatness of God when you feel anything but holy awe when you step into his presence. Romans 8.31 says, what shall we say in response to these things? Since God is for us, who can be against us? Obviously a rhetorical question. But the most important thing in this verse, ladies and gentlemen, is in verse 3. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Did you hear that? When he had made purification for sins... This great God that we are talking about made purification for sins. Now in the Greek language, there are three voices of the verb. Let me explain this. In the English language, we have two voices. We have the active voice and the passive voice. So the active voice 
the subject is the doer of the action. So I hit the ball. I am the doer of the action. In the passive voice, the subject is the recipient of the action. I was hit by the ball. But in the Greek language, there is a third voice. There is the active voice, there is a passive voice, and then there is the middle voice. And the middle voice says, the subject is the doer and the recipient of the action. So when it says in verse 3, he had made purification, that word, he made purification, is in the middle voice, where it says that Jesus is the subject and the recipient of the action. means that he is acting upon himself. So I can imagine that scene in heaven that day. The throne is in the middle. Jesus is on the side of the throne. And so this angel comes rushing in, flapping his wings, breathless, and tells God what he already knew and says, they ate the fruit. They ate that fruit. There were a few options on the table. Jesus could have said, you know what? Earth is so far away and so small. Let's just send this flood and bury the whole thing. But he didn't. He said, I will go. And that is in the middle voice. I will go and get the punishment on myself. The greatness of God is not just in his holiness, infinity, and magnificence, ladies and gentlemen. It is also in the greatness of his love toward you and me. And that is why in her song, Alive, Natalie Grant sings, Who but you could breathe and leave a trail of galaxies and dream of me? What kind of love is writing my story till the end with mercy's pen? Only you. What kind of king would choose to wear a crown that bleeds and scars to win my heart? What kind of love tells me I'm the reason he can't stay inside the grave? You, is it you, standing here before my eyes, every part of my heart cries.